So today I'm speaking with Professor Mel Ainsco. He's a world-renowned researcher and academic with a focus on inclusion and school improvement. Mel and I have known each other for 20 plus years and uh, he's one of the most interesting people in the educational field that I've worked with. So I'm hoping he can share some of his ideas. But just to give you a sense of Mel's career, he was a teacher, a head teacher of a special school, Professor of Education at Manchester, Glasgow, and Queensland University of Technology. He led the Great Manchester Challenge, which is where Mel and I met. Uh, we worked on a £50 million programme across the 10 boroughs in Greater Manchester, focusing on underachievement in the lowest advantage groups uh, within that area. And he also consults for UNESCO and other international organisations. So... That's Mel Ensko. Mel, welcome. Hi, and it's nice to be speaking to you, Indigit, again, and nice to be speaking to people around the world who I assume are listening to this while they're taking the dog for a walk, as you suggested earlier, really. Yeah. Uh, I think you want us to talk, really, about the role of professional development in schools, yeah? Absolutely. I want to focus on professional development and your work on inclusion. Uh, but before you do, just as an opener, in terms of the education landscape, what excites you right now? It's a big question, and I'll give a quick answer to it, really. I, I think that around the world, and I have, as you say, I have the privilege of uh, working with people in schools in different parts of the world. At the moment, I'm working with some schools in various Latin America countries. I'm working with some schools in, in Queensland and also in various parts of Europe. I think around the world, there is an interest in this idea of inclusion and equity, uh, some of the work I did for UNESCO a few years ago, we put, we produced a guide on that. Uh, I say we because I worked with a group of international experts. And, and the motto of the guide was, every learner matters and matters equally. Now, I think that principle, and it is a principle, applies in every school around the world, whether they're small primary schools, large secondary schools, whether they're state schools or private schools, every learner matters and matters equally. Now, that I keep that in mind in the work that I do, and perhaps unusually for people who work in universities, and it's partly explained by my career, as you said, moving into universities mid-career, my work is working with schools rather than on schools, which is the traditional research perspective. And what I try to do is to collaborate with people in schools to explore what does that principle mean in action. For our school, you know, every learner matters and matters equally. How do we put that into practice? And uh, I believe that at the centre of that has to be an investment in teacher professional development. You see, my, my work has demonstrated, I think, to my satisfaction that every school knows more than it uses. That is to say, on any day, in any school, there's more expertise, there's more knowledge, there's more creativity lying latent than is being used. So if we're to move our school forward, however good it is, you know, from good to great, from great to excellent, if we're to move our school forward, I believe we have to make better use of that expertise that's there in the schools. So what I try to do when I work with schools is I get them to find ways of developing forms of engagement where teachers are learning from each other. See, I think very successful, effective schools are not just effective for the children, but they're also effective for the adults, so they invest in adult learning. Mel, Mel go on. Just come in. I totally agree with you. Uh, I want to just uh, share with you one of the kind of uh, watch phrases that I use. It comes from kind of Helen Templey, 
uh, you'll know Helen, the Kiwi yeah. academic. And she said, I hope when I die or that I die during an in-service session talking about professional development because the transition between life and death would be so subtle. So <laughs> I, you know, I, I totally agree with you. Um, you know, it's about that collaboration, the social learning that takes place. But how do we ensure that it actually makes a difference? Because the whole point of professional development is you get improved teacher or school practice and it impacts on student outcomes. And I think what Helen's saying there is there's just so much that doesn't. Yeah, and in a sense, that's what my work has explored, is how to make it happen and how to make sure it has an impact. You know, and I mean, the, these, these are complicated questions. You see, uh, the approach I use is to get people within schools to carry out forms of what I call collaborative action research, collaborative inquiry, where people are investigating in their own school. So the school becomes a place as I said earlier, of adult learning as read as children learning. But there are all sorts of barriers. There's no question about it. And, and understanding and addressing those barriers is absolutely crucial. I mean, the obvious barrier that people who are listening may be thinking about is how the hell do we find the time? You know, how do we find the time? You're saying we've got to find time for teacher development as well as working with our kids. How do you find time? That, that, that's the one most often from, from yeah, schools yeah. just saying, look, look at everything that we've got to do. How do we squeeze professional development or professional learning into that? There's no, there's no quick answer to that. I mean, often when I give to talk to, talks to head teachers, uh, somebody will say, well, I agree with what you're saying, Mel, but there's no time. And I always say, well, to be truthful, you don't agree with what I'm saying. Time is the currency we use in schools to signal that something's important. There is no time, but if there's something important, we find time. Now, I say to those head teachers, you know, if you believe as I do, that investing in the professional learning of your staff will improve the learning of your children, you'll find time. There's no quick answers, but I, I work with schools that do find time and they do it in all sorts of creative way. There are other barriers, of course, which are more subtle, more difficult to identify and address. You see, I, I've spent many years observing teachers working. And usually when I observe a lesson, if possible, after the lesson, I sit down with the teacher and I say, look, just want to talk to you about your practice. I'm not an inspector. This is not professional uh, accountability. This is me learning about practice. And I, what I then do is I go through my notes and I say, I saw you do this. I saw the children speak about that. I saw this happen. Now, when I do that, particularly with very experienced teachers, often they express surprise. And they say, I don't remember that. Did I do that? Now, what that reminds us, for people like us who live in the kind of twilight zone of the education system, what it reminds us, how intensive the day of a teacher is. There is no time to think. There is no time to talk. You're too busy solving problems. You know, you've gone into a lesson with your plan. You realize there are whatever, 25, 30 other plans in the room. If your plan doesn't fit to those plans, then you're lost. So what we know about teachers is that they are fantastic improvisers. They have their plan but then they change their plan. They make adjustments as they watch and listen to the reaction of, of the children. It's why teaching is so tiring. People who are not teachers don't understand this. You know, why are you so tired? You've got this short day, you have long holidays, you're surrounded by all these lovely smiling children and you say you're tired. Now, why teachers are tired is they're physically tired. They're on their feet all day. They're emotionally tired. They've got these people who are draining them all the time. I'm talking about the senior management team. <laughs> and of course, most importantly, they're intellectually tired because uh, 
they are constantly planning on their feet, making adjustments, changing their lesson. It's intellectually very demanding. Now, I think often we've underestimated that, not talked about it really. And in the work I do, what I try to do is to create opportunities for teachers, most importantly, to see one another working. Schools that make progress find time, and again, I know it's not easy, so that teachers can see one another teaching, and then where possible, as soon as possible, sit down and talk about what they've been seeing. Now, what that happens is you create a language of practice in the school so people can actually talk about what they do. And often the devil is in the detail, the detail of what they do. Now, when they talk about what they do, gradually they create that language of practice which is shared in a school community so that people can actually talk to each other about how they do things and critically how they solve problems. Very successful schools are collaborative schools. People have problems, and when they have problems, they know they can turn to their colleagues and they know they can talk about it in an atmosphere of mutual support. Less successful schools are places where there is an individualised culture. You work on your own, you face problems on your own, you take them home and worry about them. So all this is about cultural change. Now, the great guru of organisational change is an American, Edgar Schein, and he says culture and leadership are the two sides of the same coin. So what this is talking about is creating a culture in the school where people do share, support one another, and help one another when they face problems. It's not easy to do for all the reasons we talked about in terms of time and tradition, but very successful schools pull that off. Now, I think when that happens, that creates a climate and an atmosphere for professional learning, as well, of course, practical things about how that can work. You see, the work I've done suggests that Um, to create that kind of school-based professional development, you need to create an atmosphere of inquiry. So what we're talking about is an inquiring stance where the whole school is asking questions about what are we doing, what are the best things we're achieving, what are the challenges, and what else can we do to meet those challenges. That's where my concern with inclusion and equity, every learner matters and matters equally, I think is central to this. Because every school however successful it is, has children and young people that it's not reaching. Now, in a school that's on the move, a moving school, those children become a resource because they lead us to ask the question, what are the barriers that these children are experiencing? Now, I use barriers in a particular way. It's a kind of metaphor. See, the curriculum is a barrier if it's not designed with all children in mind. The assessment systems can be a barrier if they don't celebrate the progress of all children, including some who are moving slowly, perhaps, or relatively slowly. But, of course, also our teaching methods can be a barrier. If we don't know how to plan a lesson and orchestrate a lesson where every child can feel that they can be involved and so on. So the kind of professional development that I work with involves people in schools, usually working in groups, uh, collaborating, um, focusing on those learners who are missing out. And I use that phrase rather deliberately because it will mean different things in different places and collecting evidence about those children. And what that does is it throws light on what the barriers are and then leads us to think about how do we address those barriers. Now, this is crucial. Schools that do this, in my experience, get it right. The changes that they make in response to those children who are missing out benefit all of the learners in the school. So my argument is inclusion and equity is the road to excellence. 
Yeah, I worked with with Maud Blair. I don't remember Maud. We did a lot of work on on race and uh, education and entertainment. And the thing that the Maud would say is, if you're focusing on the needs of those students, really what you're doing is, is sending an X-ray through the system because everything that you do to support and benefit those students will benefit the whole school. So, so absolutely. But how do you get teachers and possibly school leaders who have taught or led in a certain way for you know possibly years or in some case tens of years, how do you get them to step back and reflect and say, okay, we could do this differently, better, more effectively? Yeah, and it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big question again that I think really. I mean, what we know from kind of research on educational change is that when you try to introduce a change, you're going to get turbulence. It's a bit when, like you're on the plane and the pilot says, fasten your seatbelts, we're going through turbulence. Now that turbulence can take many forms. It is about time, it is about traditions. And as you say, for well-established colleagues who have effective ways of working, inevitably they're saying, why do we need to change? I've been working like this for 20 years and I get the results. So th there's no easy answer to this, but it does keep taking you back to the question of leadership. And I, I use leadership in the widest sense. Very successful schools, leadership, as we know, is distributed e effectively around the environment. But it's a process and it takes time and you don't all, always get all the colleagues working with you. But gradually, if things start to happen, hopefully thing, people will start to pull in. You see, m my view is that evidence, as I've implied in all that I've said, is crucial to all of this. Now, what do I mean by evidence? Well, evidence from watching other teachers, can be a, a stimulus to reflection and change. When you see another teacher working, um, you, you see yourself. It's a mirror. Why does she do it in this way and I do it in another way? So seeing other teachers and having a chance to talk about practice and compare notes is definitely a stimulus. I mean, obviously, it, it, first of all, it's a vehicle for sharing good practice, and I'm all for that. But it's also then a kind of challenge. When I'm walking with school, working with schools, I always say, be clear, this is not performance management. I'm in favour of that, and you should have it. This is professional development entered into voluntarily by colleagues who want to develop their own practice and support one another's. So getting that clear is absolutely crucial. And awfully, often when that's not clear, that is a barrier to the kind of thing I'm talking about. The other kind of evidence, I mean, obviously statistical evidence is, is, is a challenge as well. That makes you think about what's happening in your school. But the other kind of evidence that, you know, I'm absolutely convinced about from a lot of uh, experiences is the voice of the learners themselves. We have to understand what this school looks like through the experience of the young people who come here every day. We have to understand what the, my classroom looks like. What do the children make in my classroom? Now, this is def difficult data to get at. Yeah. Again, it's time consuming, but also there are often barriers to all of this. Now, we've got a lot of experience and, and ideas as to how this can work. Let, let me give you an example that came to mind as I was speaking. I work with a very successful, large, oversubscribed high school in the north of England a few years ago. And as is our custom, I say ours because I don't do anything on my own, we get the schools to set up staff inquiry groups. We always say this needs to be led by a relatively senior member of staff to show that this is serious business. And what we suggest is uh, to the staff inquiry group, think about who are the children who are missing out, uh, think about what you know about those children, and think about what else do we need to know. Anyway, the group of staff, and it was led by a deputy head teacher, 
came to the view that there were some children in their school, or young people, a secondary school, who were kind of disconnected. So they collected some statistical evidence. I think it was for year three, which was kind of 14, 15-year-olds. And they collected statistical evidence, which was there available, about the children who were getting rewards and those who were getting kind of, you know, punishments. They didn't call them punishments. And they started to look at these data and they started to look for the youngsters who were missing out. And, of course, as it often happens with this kind of school-based inquiry, they experienced a shock. They realised that something like 40% of these young people were rarely getting rewards, rarely getting punishments. Now, their hunch was that these would be students in the middle. But actually, again, when they explored the evidence, they were right across the attainment levels. There were some very high-achieving kids. There were some in the middle. There were some low-achieving kids. With our guidance, they decided they needed more evidence. So the first thing they did was they watched some lessons. They observed some lessons, and we worked with them from university, uh, giving them some advice as how to do this. And they realized that they could pick out these youngsters. They decided to call them invisible students. They said, we've got invisible students in this school. And when they observed the lessons, they realized they could pick them out because these kids, their names were never used. They rarely were asked to ask a que- answer a question, and yet there they were in the classroom. What we then did with them, we created a series of focus groups with small groups of youngsters to get them to talk about lessons, lessons they enjoyed, lessons they didn't enjoy. And in these focus groups, there were some of these so-called invisible students. We heard some incredible stories, often from girls, teenage girls, who felt really miffed because a picture one girl, for example, who said, you know, I come to school every day I do my homework. I never misbehave. Nobody seems to know who I am. And one girl said, sometimes I put my hand up. I'm waiting for help for the teachers and I wait and I wait. And then the teacher's coming towards me. And just before she gets near to me, she goes off somewhere else because there's somebody else in the room who's misbehaving. And there was a sense of of unfairness. And it's particularly there with teenage students who feel unfairly treated. You know, we go to school every day. We do everything that's requested of us. And, you know, nobody knows our name. Are we included? Well, yes, we are in one sense, but in another sense, not. So what happened in that particular school in the following year was, having had something of a dispute with the senior staff who who were very uncomfortable about all this, they did a major staff development exercise on how do we make sure that every, every learner is included? How do we make sure that everybody's name is mentioned? Simple things, but it made a big difference across across the uh, across the school. So my argument is really this kind of school-based professional development, starting from those youngsters who we think are missing out, collecting evidence about them and from them, can then stimulate eventually a whole school professional development program. And as I say, that in my view is is a pathway to excellence with any within any school. Um, where would you start? So uh, would you say you know, we're going to go for an inquiry-based approach and we're going to go to either heads of year or subject heads and you're going to do it within your area, your department, or would you do it whole school? What advice would you give about where to start from? Well, the fundamental principle of this, as far as I'm concerned, is it has to be school-led. It has to be school-led. It has to take account of context. What would work in one school might not work in another school. So as I said earlier, what we usually do is, having discussed it with the senior leadership team, we ask them to create initially a staff inquiry team and we give them advice. 
people you think are likely to be able to make things happen, you know, movers and shakers, me, if you like, including one senior member of staff, and then carry out something on a small scale to demonstrate the possibility. And then when that group have done something that seems to be making a difference, then, of course, you can start to say, let's present this to the whole staff. Let's see what else we can do to move this forward, to create what I've called an inquiring school, the moving school, all these kind of cliches that people like me use. So it's got to be, it's got to fit the context. And I, I think it's got to be led from within particular schools. I'm sure there's lots of good practice in your schools about all of this anyway that, that people could learn from. Absolutely. And that's where I was going to go next, which is, you know, we're now a group of 87 schools. So can you yeah. say a little bit about collaboration across schools and how we could best achieve that? Yeah. Uh, and I mean, again, we've got lots of research evidence that successful education systems, and in that sense yours is an educational system, are places where the sort of things we've talked about, it's not just going on within schools, but it's going on between schools. And schools are learning from each other. I'm working at the moment with uh, all the schools, primary, secondary and special, and nurseries in the city of Dundee. And uh, we've created what are called school improvement partnerships, typically those of three or four schools, schools that don't normally collaborate. And one of the things they've been doing is they've been carrying out peer inquiry. But what that involves is senior people from the partner schools spending a morning in the school, observing lessons, talking to children, and at the end of the morning coming together and saying, what have we learned about this school and what does it mean for the rest of us? Now, I think when you get this kind of school-to-school collaboration going, that can certainly add value. Now, I guess with your schools, which are so spread out of the world, that creates all sorts of strategic dilemmas. But of course, we've got the benefits now of technology and we can visit each of the schools across across the internet. If you remember the work we did in City Challenge in London and Greater Manchester, the strong yeah. emphasis on what was called families of schools. Absolutely. These were schools created deliberately on the basis of statistical data so that they could help help one another to support one another's professional development and uh, uh, and, and learning and so on. So I'm, I'm absolutely committed that the two things go hand in hand. Inquiry-based improvement within schools, inquiry-based improvement between schools. And clearly in a network like yours, you've got all sorts of potential and all sorts of and as you say, those where you've got groups of schools in particular parts of the world, they could clearly create an area partnership. Obviously, area partnerships tend to be the most powerful because you're talking about the same kind of families, the same kind of children. But the possibilities are endless. And I mean, it, it invites creativity, I think. And one of the things you used to always say to me, and I think I've, I've read that you said, is uh, it's, it's almost impossible to collaborate outside your school if you don't have that strong culture of collaboration within your school. Uh, as the foundation, yeah. do you still hold to that? Yeah, I do, absolutely. No, that's absolutely right, really. I mean, the other thing that r- raises all of this, and I don't know how far it applies to your school, but certainly in schools, for example, here in England that I work with, the question of the competition between schools, you know, can we collaborate in an environment where we're effectively in a market to compete with each other? Yeah, absolutely. Now, I think I think that's possible. I really think that's possible. Uh, And I think you can mix a cocktail of collaboration and competition. I remember I worked with a group of schools some years ago in South Wales, and we had them in kind of families of schools, really. And I was in uh, in one of the secondary schools in August when the GCSE examinations that all the students take at 16 was being announced. Um, And I talked to the head teacher and I said to her, you've got the results. He said, oh, yes, I got them yesterday. And uh, confidentially, he said, but I was rather pleased. We've done very well. He said, 
But I also looked at the other nine schools in our network that we created. And he said, I wanted them to do well. So I looked at their results as well. But then he said something interesting. I want us all to do well, but I still want to be the best. <laughs> Competition makes us try, doesn't it? Pushes us, stimulates us. But collaboration opens up possibilities for other resources we can use to create a better response in the competition. Yeah, absolutely. Brilliant. Thank you. Inclusion has been right up the agenda, particularly post-COVID. You know, so the the folks on neurodiversity and accepting that that every school has students across the spectrum. Where do you see that that now going? You know, are you infused by by the fact that people are talking about it and they're trying to address the issue. And again, you know, what advice would you give? I mean, in, in a sense, it's not a new challenge. It was there before. But I suppose one of the few positive things of COVID was it threw light on that challenge and, and people have become aware of it. And I mean, I don't know about in your schools, but certainly in many of the schools I'm working with in different parts of the world, school attendance has become an absolute crisis now. And, you know, kids who normally went to school now don't necessarily come every day or don't come at all and so on. So I think I think it's it's all of this has sort of thrown light on differences, including the sorts of differences that you're talking about. But I, I feel quite optimistic, really, because I think you, you know that the guiding uh, uh, principle globally is sustainable development goal four. You know, there were 17 sustainable development goals and number four is education. And that says the emphasis has to be on inclusion and equity. And I think that's given an, a, an impetus, I think, to the whole movement towards all of this. And I suppose, repeating what I've said during this discussion, my view is differences in a school that is on the move becomes a resource. So those children are less of a problem, although sometimes they can be a problem, less of a problem and more of a stimulus for innovation. That's what creates the movement, I think. Brilliant. Thank you, Ralph. So one final question. Uh, which we're going to ask everyone who comes on on these podcasts. So what lessons did you learn the hard way that would help our schools navigate the challenges and changes that they may encounter? I think what I've learned the hard way, and it's been a long, slow process of learning, going back to when I was a teacher myself and a head teacher, but then when I then had the privilege to work with other schools, is... The, the phrase that's sometimes used in the school improvement world, and it's a, line, it's a kind of cliche, cliche, is that school improvement is technically simple but socially complex. It's not that difficult for people like me to say what needs to happen. That's the easy bit. It's the social complexity, the different views, the different opinions, the, the relationships, good and bad, that exist in any school community. So the, the art of this, and it's probably the right word, it is to actually create what I described earlier as a kind of inquiring culture. But it has to be done in such a way where we value our colleagues and we see our colleagues, even those that we don't agree with, as somebody who can be a stimulus to us and a reward to us, which is why, of course, it keeps coming back. It, I know it's inevitable. keeps coming back to the issue of leadership. How do we lead a school environment where the community is open to new ideas and prepared to support one another? It's taken me a long time to learn about that, and I'm still learning about it, but clearly it's absolutely crucial to success in relation to the things we've talked about today. Yeah, completely, because if you, if you look at our schools, 87 schools in different contexts all over the world, you, know, you could technically design a school in a box and try to get out to all those schools. But you can't do that because it doesn't fit the social context and you've got to work alongside with 
and build the relationships. For me, I think that's why the challenge programs were so successful, that we wired top down, we worked alongside and with schools uh, through you know, your leadership, you know, Tim Brighouse's leadership. Um, and th- for me, that, that was the defining feature of the challenge programs. Yeah, I agree with that. Well, that's it. We've come to the end. Thank you very much, Mel. My really appreciate your time this, this morning. Hopefully, we'll get you back for, for another one. Okay. Um, but thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.